right. So welcome back to our podcast. And today we have John, who is a, currently working as a think tank fellow um, in DC right now, and um, who studied Sino-Vietnam relations at Columbia, um, and has a lot to uh, talk about with his experience in living and studying China in Vietnam. Um, so John, thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's great to have you here. And you're planning on heading to Vietnam later this month, right? So it seems like you have a lot of exciting plans ahead of you. Can you tell us a little bit about your research project there? And, um, and you, you did your master's in the field of international and world history at Columbia. Can you tell us more about how you got into the field and uh, uh, just your research and study what you're excited about right now? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, uh, Juliana, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's really a delight and an honor to speak with you this afternoon. And uh, I've listened to a few of your podcasts before, and I really enjoyed them. So looking forward to more of your content. So yeah, first of all, yeah, currently I'm working as an intern for the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, which uh, originally was a think tank founded in the 1970s as a gift from the German government to thank the U.S. and to uh, foster cooperation um, following the, the late 1940s Marshall Plan. But mm -hmm. um, going back originally, I, I got really into the study of you know Asian history, which kind of led me to where I am today. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was I lived across um, from um, my best friend, who was uh, really into like a civil war history and civil war reenactments. You know, even when we were like in elementary school, we would go during the summer to these civil war reenactments that were put on. In, in the summer in Wisconsin. And so that really got me into, into like history um, in general. And so then when I was in third grade, my family ended up hosting a Japanese exchange student at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, Dokio University um, exchange program. And that got me really interested in Asian history. And after that, I, I wanted to take some more classes in um, Asian history. But, you know, in, in Wisconsin, it's more, you know, American focused, more European focused. So it ended up being that I waited until college where I took some classes on Asia and the pre-modern world. And um, particularly a class on the Vietnam War is taught by Alfred McCoy, who was a, a reporter during the Vietnam War era and went, went to Vietnam, went to Laos during the war. And that class just blew my mind about, um, you know, things that happened in Vietnam. Like, for instance, he talked about the Binchwin pirates, all these like <laughs> different like cults that were kind of dueling it out in the Mekong River Delta. And then he wrote his own like book about um, kind of the secret war in Laos with the CIA backed relation um, in Hmong fighters. I was just like, this is mind blowing. I really need to take more of it. So that that really got me addicted into into history. Like his, his book is about opium and like you know the addiction of opium, how it fueled the you know the military um, operations, the CIA operations in 
uh, Indochina at that time, but his class itself was kind of like my opium in that I, I kind of started to get addicted to, to the study of, of Vietnamese and East Asian history. Wow, that's a, that's a quite, you're quite a storyteller, John. <laughs> yeah, just thinking of opium, I'm just thinking uh, back on how New York recently legalized uh, recreational marijuana. <laughs> that, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was surprised by that. I mean, I know when we were, you know, living at I House, I would, you know, you'd go walk down the street and you could smell, you know, coming from the park, the, the marijuana. And I was like, I, I like I wasn't that su- surprised. I just I didn't know how close they were to legalizing it. So that's a very interesting yeah. development. How uh, well this is this is very diverting from you know, what you just um, introduced about all the fascinating history. But how how do you think say opium um, could be like compared to marijuana now a days with sure. You know I I think, think you know when I was. Oh, say again. Sorry, do, do you think it's it's good that people consume it? Because, I mean, opium, as we know, the opium war in, in China and in, right. in elsewhere in Asia paralyzed, like, a large amount of population. Right. I, you know, I've, I've read, um, you know, last year in London, one of my professors really focused a lot on the opium war. His name was Anthony Best. And it was really fascinating but tragic. Uh, and I, you know, I think just, you know, even recently in Vietnam, my, um, our, like, Vietnamese teacher at Columbia, she said when she was growing up walking to uh, middle school, she would pass the street and it was all these, you know, poor opium heroin addicts just like lying out in the street because they had nowhere to go. So even, you know, we think of it as being kind of an older problem, but it, I think it's was, you know, even, you know, 30 years ago was still a huge issue in uh, Asia. I think, you know, I've come to think differently than I did when I was younger about things like marijuana and these kind of drugs. I think, you know, when you're younger in the U.S., they have these really hard, um, hardcore, like, education classes and campaigns to deter people from using any drugs like marijuana or cocaine. And it's kind of like, in my mind growing up, they were both the same thing. But um, I think over time, I've come to see, I, I especially liked um, this idea that the Portuguese have used that Portugal, you know, has this interesting model of justice where they kind of decriminalized a lot of these drugs just because mm-hmm. mainly because their police system couldn't afford to mm-hmm. prosecute all these drug users. So now in Portugal, you know, I think it's still a, technically a crime, but it's treated more as a as a medical problem. And these addicts are sent to hospitals instead. And I think that helps a lot because they they keep them out of the prison systems. And I think, you know, the U.S. could learn a lot from that because we spend so much money on the drug war. We spend so much money putting these people in jail. And I think ultimately putting people in jail for things like marijuana and even cocaine is in the long term, long term more dangerous to society because these people get into these criminal organizations and these gangs that they can't and be, you know, surveilled all the time by the, the warden. So I think ultimately the Portuguese model may be the right direction for the U.S. to take. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know much about the Portuguese model, but I do know that in Canada, they legalized marijuana use or recreational or medical um, a while back, I think. And they even have, I think, special places for people to inject uh 
trucks uh, at specific places so that you know there there aren't so many people suffering from from doing it themselves and then contracting AIDS and all these terrible diseases. Um, yeah, I, it's it's definitely a controversial topic that we can discuss for a whole class. <laughs> uh, to, to bring some like Chinese culture into it, I, I really like this, uh, this you know, the Shengyu uh, in Chinese that I think both Mao and Deng Xiaoping use, it's sure, sure, cho, sure. <laughs> and I think that's like, I think that embodies, you know, the Portuguese model, because it's like, what should we do that's realistic, that works? You know, it's not so much, you know, every, I don't think anybody really likes and wants people to be using marijuana or cocaine, especially, but I think based on the experience, you know, what sure, sure, cho, sure is, based on the experience, you have to make policy based on what's going to help your society in the long run. So I think that's a good, good chung youth that the U.S. should live by. <laughs> You're a huge fan of chung youth. <laughs> so so you, you do know a lot about chung youth. Is that how you started uh, learning Chinese and how, how you started with Vietnamese? Is it also like, you know, word games and these fun um, little like short stories, maybe. How did you get started with uh, learning languages um, for especially these uh, these non-romantic, uh, ro I guess, what do you call it, non-romantic language? Yeah, non-romance uh, or non-Germanic languages. Yeah, non-Germanic languages. Sure. Yeah, I would say, and I think as you know, I, I studied German in middle school uh, all the way through college. And I just was kind of a slacker in German, but it, it was like kind of fun because I think like, you know, a lot of my friends and I, we like took German just because like, it was kind of like something kind of like, you know, we were rebelling against the system. We didn't take art. We didn't take Spanish like a lot of people did. And so German was kind of like this catch all for like people who wanted to <laughs> kind of like, you know, do something out of the ordinary. But um. I guess when I got to college and I started taking history, especially Asian history, it wasn't so much like the linguistic aspects of Chinese that um, inspired me. It was more like I felt to, you know, to take a step further to really engage with the history and the society of China and uh, later Vietnam that I really needed to learn the language. So, I, you know, I have some, one of my good friends, he's like a ling linguist and that is why he likes, he knows so much about Chinese. I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more on the cultural historical side and that's why I wanted to learn um, Chinese and Vietnamese. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I, when I was uh, in high school, when I was a runner, I, I um, you know, started out very slow as a runner, but eventually after like seven years, I finally like made it to the varsity. And I was yeah. like, you know, it's the same thing with language. You start out, I started out, I was like so bad at Chinese. And eventually, like after many years, I like slowly got better and better, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm still improving. I'm not like a varsity level speaker yet, but uh, that's kind of how I approach it. I've seen your your homeworks and and how you mark up like almost every <laughs> word. You're very hardworking. <laughs> I applaud that very much. So you have um, you you started learning Chinese when you were in um in the Wisconsin Madison undergrad, but you have traveled extensively in Asia, especially in China and in Vietnam, um, because you were studying abroad and you finished your undergrad in three years. Is that true? 
Well, it's actually kind of true. I I ended up um, I I got a lot of credits from before I was at Madison. So there were, there were like a few years. Uh, that's a story for another time. But so I ended up from high school from the two years after I, I, I transferred to Madison with all these credits. I and see. that was how I was able to it's sort of like yeah, finish. I was um, yeah, five semesters at Madison, one in Harbin as a uh, study abroad student with the CET Harbin program. Mm-hmm. That was your first time in China? Actually, my first time was also through UW-Madison, but in, in the summer of 2014, I went with the Tianjin Study Abroad Program, which is not exclusively UW-Madison students, but it's run by UW-Madison with, um, I believe, Tianjin Shurfan Dashi and mm-hmm. Nankai University in oh, Tianjin. Cool. And that was like, that was crazy because I was like, just, you know, a beginner at Chinese. And I, I've always, I always wanted to go to China, but that was like, I was just like submerged living for three months in Tianjin and I just I really loved it I, I loved how chaotic and raw uh the society of Tianjin was <laughs> <laughs> can you elaborate especially on the raw part <laughs> <laughs> no I think I think you know even since 2014 China has changed a lot but um back then you know I think it was kind of I I, I don't know I don't think Xi Jinping was quite um, you know, he was, he didn't have like his hold on power that he does today. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was, I still feel like 2014 was kind of like a transition period from the Hu Jintao era, which itself was kind of a, I think more and more people, scholars of China are seeing that as kind of its own distinctive period in time where you have this very advanced China that's, you know, just, you know, just about, you know, to challenge the the U.S. and the West, but it's like still a very, it, it doesn't have that animosity that there is now between China mm-hmm. and the U.S. So like, I think by um, chaotic and raw, I mean, it's just, there's so many people on the street walking everywhere, so many buildings, every neighborhood, there's these huge skyscrapers going up, there's these shopping centers, there's there's mm-hmm. lights. It, it reminded me of like, uh, you know, if, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so you play yeah. like Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, or you you watch Star Wars. It's like kind of like you're in this this huge like futuristic like city in the middle of Tianjin. Then when you go to the countryside. It's like you know you're going back in time like 50 years. It, I love that you know juxtaposition. Oh, that's so cool. That is so cool. So so when you were there, do you, do you remember kind of uh, getting interested in any piece of literature uh other than you know the the vocabulary books <laughs> you know i i was thinking at that i think at that time like in Tianjin, i wasn't advanced enough to really develop an interest in um really any any like significant aspect of chinese literature i think i did Harbin? I, yeah in, in Harbin, i would say um, by that time, like I, I ended up actually taking a class in Harbin. Like you, you have four classes, and one of those classes is the Idwei, the one-on-one. Mm. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in like, you know, political philosophy, especially like mm. radical philosophy, Marxist-Leninist philosophy. <laughs> and so I ended you up just. You could have a very good conversation. <laughs> oh, that I, I definitely look forward to that. <laughs> And are you? Would you say you're a heartline <laughs> But uh, yeah, I ended up requesting to take. Oh, say again. 
no, 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 I'm just joking. I said, are you a hardline Leninist? Oh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I would consider myself more of a follower of George Washington, <laughs> a follower of George Washington thought. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you were, sorry, you were going to say um, on reading Marxist literature in China. Sure. Yes. So the class I ended up taking was Mao Zedong, Sixiang, Mao Zedong Thought. Yeah. And I, I had like a really, it was like the, the whole like CT Harbin program. I, I strongly would recommend that to anybody interested in learning Chinese. I think it it really takes you from like a beginner level of Chinese into intermediate or like advanced in like a very short period of time like you you're not allowed to speak English theoretically for four months of course like when you go to the nightclubs and the bars on the weekends everybody like opens up a little bit but yeah the the CT Harbin experience was it was like a boot camp for Chinese basically and I had so I had like this very um like very strict young a Chinese professor who like just kind of like drilled me every day in like Mao Zedong thought and so I ended up like learning you know the history of Mao Zedong and the Communist Party really really well through Chinese and that was it was like it was pretty shocking at first but after a while I was like oh this is really improving my understanding both of the language and Chinese history. What what shocked you at first? I, th- I thought that if you read it in English, you were pretty familiar with, with most of the ideas like or ideology. Um, did, did you read any of his poems, his creative writing? <laughs> you <laughs> know, I... be good too, <laughs> but I don't know how much of that is like pressured. <laughs> you know, I think actually I didn't read that much of Mao Zedong in English before I got there. Mm. I'd read like the introduction to Red Star over China by, um, Snow. by, by Snow, yeah. And so that was like kind of my introduction. I generally knew some of the history of Mao Zedong and like the Communist Party, but that was, I think like originally, like I learned his actual writings in Chinese. We didn't so much focus on his poetry, but more of his like, you know, political guerrilla warfare philosophy. Mm, okay, what, what was it then? What, how would you describe his guerrilla <laughs> Well, I, I think the one, uh, the one, like, I, I remember, like, a few quotes. The one thing is, nida, nida, woda, woda. <laughs> and that's Mao Zedong's idea that, you know, Chiang Kai-shek has his own, like, very, kind of more of, like, a formal way of fighting. Chiang Kai-shek was trained by the Japanese, mm. armed by the Germans. So he has, like, more of a European-inspired way of fighting, and not really guerrilla warfare at all at that point like in the I think the 20s and the 30s and Mao Zedong is like you know we're not going to fight him that way because we can't possibly win fighting like you know like uh you know a regular warfare we need to have guerrilla warfare we need to have like a total war by mm-hmm. like mobilizing the peasants so mm-hmm. I, I thought you know it's very colorful language I really enjoyed that <laughs> it's like it's also... versus Godzilla <laughs> um I- well, no, I just, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when you, when you mentioned the guerrilla warfare. <laughs> um, but, so, but I mean, how, how did you find uh, Mao's ideas in, in today's Chinese society when you, when you went or when, I mean, um, I guess you could say like the whole, whole like, um, decade that we are in right now 
or, or the last decade. Um, did you see people kind of still following that? Uh, how is it influencing Chinese society, you think? Right. Yeah, that's a, a great question because I think even the last, like even since 2016, when I went to Harbin, I think it has changed. I think, uh, I think, you know, with the Deng Xiaoping period, it was really like kind of a reaction against Mao. And I think Deng Xiaoping couldn't really come out and just completely um, reverse Mao Zedong thought officially. It was still kept in the constitution. But I, I think that was, you know, a lot of Deng Xiaoping's gang was you know hurt by the Mao Zedong era and I think to you know to maintain like the legitimacy of the founding of the PRC they had to keep Mao as a figurehead you know they had to keep his portrait outside of Tiananmen Square and I think that kind of shows um it's kind of you know symbolic because you know it's like it's like Mao he's like on the you know the the front of the Forbidden City but the Forbidden City is you know like a feudal a feudal imperialist kind of architecture and that's you know what Chinese it's like you know there's certain you know, in any, in any society, you, you put these, like, portraits of people, like, you know, maybe George Washington or Martin Luther King Jr. over, you know, over, like, this memorial that maybe they had nothing to do with. Maybe they're, like, you know, we think of their ideology one way, but really, in it, historically, it might have been very different. But mm -hmm. I think with Mao Zedong thought, you know, when my teacher was explaining it to me, it, it was even, you know, awkward for her because, you know, um, the ideas that Mao propagated were just so different than the ideas that came out of China that made, you know, China very rich and powerful after the Deng Xiaoping era into like the, you know, 2015 around that time. I think with, you know, one interesting thing is the Bo Xilai affair where Bo Xilai kind of was this very charismatic figure kind of like Mao was, not to that, you know, extreme of an extent, but he was kind of into this mass mobilization. I think Bo Xilai would like text these people with these Mao quotes from the Little Red Book. Yeah. And so I think that was interesting. And the thing is, Bo Xilai was kind of, he was, you know, he did a lot of corrupt things. He, he got, um, you know, thrown out of power by Xi Jinping. But I think Xi Jinping actually adopted a few of these ideas. He's kind of bringing back this, you know, how very hard line, like party, centered um, vision of the Chinese government, even compared to the Deng era, whereas in the Deng era, you had a lot of room for these private companies to, to maneuver. But I think with the Xi Jinping era, you know, you're not going to ever go back to this, you know, Stalinist economic period that Mao saw. But I think compared to even Deng Xiaoping, Xi Jinping, has this kind of Maoist idea where it's like, you know, everyone, even if they're like employees for a private company, even if they're a CEO of a private company, you still need to have like the party, loyalty to the party, loyalty to the nation state mm -hmm. at the center of your corporate life. So I think it's a very interesting way of bringing some elements of Maoism into today's governance of China. Hmm. That's, that's very, that's very interesting. That's a, that's a great, I think that's a great answer for my question with I feel like when, you know, I, I'm talking with older generation, like my grandma's generation, and she was a red guard, so was all the good students back in her time, right? Um, and they, they firsthand experience, you know, be, being part of the movement. Um, and they, of course, worshipped Mao, but 
the thing is, uh, they still worship Mao today. And it's something that is so kind of so fundamental to, to their identity that they don't want anyone to say any bad things uh, of Mao. It kind of reminds me of what's happening right now with Xinjiang, right? When, uh, when there's any criticism on the human rights. Of course, neither you nor I have been to Xinjiang um, or anywhere close to where the supposed, uh, I don't know if there is um, camp or re-education um, center is, but it touched um, on the very core of, of Chinese people now that when you bring up this, and that's why, you know, boycott, uh, Nike, and all these uh, are happening right now. Um, what do you, what do you feel about this? Do you think it's the government going too far in um, leading the, the, um, the mass to believe in something? Or do you think that is necessary for a unification of, of kind of the Chinese population sure. that's you know that's a very good question a very pertinent question uh you know a few years ago even before the xinjiang issue came up i read this book called never forget national humiliation um and it was it was a fascinating book and i think it really ties into how uh, china um interacts with the world interacts with global media global journalism and so i th i think to be honest, this, you know, the book focuses on the patriotic education uh, in Chinese schools that has happened since the 80s, since the Deng Xiaoping era, where because of, you know, the, the rising materialism, the, the rising, you know, the market oriented um, life, you know, the Chinese people have become so rich in the last 30 years mm -hmm. that the party kind of needed something to unify the Chinese people uh, spiritually. And I think that, you know, is, I think patriotic education in China does try to do that. And I think it, it's interesting. I just, I'm, I, you know, I'm in, in any society you're going to have, you know, we're not necessarily in the U.S. going to call it patriotic education, maybe in Japan, you know, they, there's a lot of stuff with like, you know, the right wingers, the left wingers kind of dueling it out, but, uh, we won't call it that, but any society does have this kind of battle over history, the, the mm -hmm. battle over historical memory. And so I, I do think that the Chinese government, um, since Deng Xiaoping instituted these patriotic education uh, reforms, has been it's been very clever at blunting criticism from the global media mm -hmm. about anything, not just Xinjiang, but to Hong Kong, uh, to Taiwan, yeah. Inner Mongolia. And so it's I, I would say, in my opinion, it it does seem kind of in, like an equivocation that, you know, any any criticism against China is is like seen is, is tried to portray by the state media through the lens of national humiliation. Like this criticism mm -hmm. is just a continuation of this Western imperialist criticism of of China and trying to you know prevent China from rising up. So I, I think that's the narrative that the CCP wants to push. And I think it, it's it's effective. I don't think, you know, obviously I don't agree with that narrative completely. I think there are some things I might agree with, but I think um, whether or not I, I agree it's true, I think it's, 
it is an effective way to blunt international criticism mm -hmm. of Chinese movements. Um, you know, I to go to the Xinjiang issue, I think, you know, in the South China Morning Post, it's, they have a lot of diff diverse opinions. I think there's some uh, editorials that are more uh, pro-Beijing, some that are more independent, some that are more, you know, pro um, Hong Kong democracy. And so I, I read that journal a lot. I saw one article about the, the idea, there's this term about whataboutism. It's kind of like this new yeah. academic term um, that I, I've heard used a lot in the, like the think tank circles a lot mm -hmm. as well. But I think there's this, you know, that honestly genocide is not unique to one country. You know, the the U.S., honestly, like the Native American genocide in the U.S. I'm reading this. I heard. <laughs> yeah, book, book right now. And it was, um, it, it's actually um, by name, uh, an historian named Roxanne Dunbar or to, Ortiz and I'm like I'm so fascinated by Native American history because we just didn't learn that much about the the genocide part of it and I think that <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that um, a lot of the stuff that is happening in Xinjiang it, it's not you know a physical you know it's not trying to exterminate these people as you know to, to kill them but I think there are parallels mm -hmm. between the U.S. Um, and the Xin like the Xinjiang, these uh, re-education camps that they're trying to make, you know, like they tried to make the Native Americans, they didn't make, they didn't want to kill them after a while, like in the 1900s, they wanted to turn them into just, you know, Euro-American people, even mm -hmm. though they're Native Americans. And I think the same is happening in Xinjiang. They want to turn these, these weirds, they don't want to kill them, but they, they want to turn them into patriotic, Han, like I, I, I would say like they want to turn them to Han Chinese, um, you know, citizens that are patriotic. So I think that's, there there are, you know, it, it's very similar, but I, I don't think that just because, you know, genocide has happened in the U.S. or wherever that it, it should be, you know, these similar re-education camps, which was effective in the U.S. Honestly, it sadly was very effective. The Native Americans lost a lot of their cultural heritage. Mm. And so it, you know, it, I don't, you know, morally agree with these kind of systems, but I think, you know, maybe in the long term, it may be effective if, you know, people don't, you know, step in and say, hey, this is, this was a mistake in the US, this was a mistake in Turkey, in uh, Europe, and that I, I think, you know, it's, it might be better off if you have minorities that are still empowered to have their own heritage, but can see themselves as part of a pluralistic nation state as opposed to a, like a, a very monocultural nation state. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think what you pointed out, I was thinking about exactly that too. Um, and especially, you know, what aboutism is, is very much not just in the language for journalism in China or propagandist in China, but also on the state media level, right? You, you see the uh, spokesman for for Chinese go uh, government always say, "Oh, what about you know the the Capitol Hill riot in U.S.? You know that's just similar to you know the Hong Kong uh, demonstrators uh, who are uh, trying to restore democracy and you know? all." So so really, you see this clash of ideologies getting more and more intense um, these days much more than when I just came to US in 2013. 
Um, Because I feel like back then it was just the end of, it was just like kind of towards the end of the Obama era where you, you much feel like the, the focus is still uh, Middle East and getting rid of uh, Saddam and and, um, Hussein and and, um, getting America pulled out of the troubled war that lasted too long. Um, Speaking of that, you know, well, with, with what U.S. struggled with for really the whole like 2000 till 2010s, early 2010s, um, is, is, I would say, the very much, um, I wouldn't say it's a failure, but it failed in, in many um, areas let alone um, saying how much destruction that the Middle Eastern countries suffered. Uh, you know, all these refugees and all these uh, homes getting bombed and, and all that. But U.S., you know, putting in so much money and um, and your soldiers died too. Uh, do you think it's, it's this kind of... Um, a bad investment in a sense as in <laughs> Vietnam War. <laughs> well, well, how do you how do you feel about Vietnam War uh, in yeah, hindsight nowadays? Yeah, you know that's that's an absolutely like critical comparison that I think a lot like the v, the lessons of Vietnam are some things that I wish the the planners of the Iraq war would have studied more closely and it just seems like they didn't i i think you know i i would say you know growing up in the post 9-11 period i do feel you know i i make a distinction between the afghan war and the iraq war i did think with the taliban there there was action military action needed to you know remove uh the taliban um organizations and uh, Afghanistan that had supplied Al Qaeda, but I think with Iraq, you know, it was it was such a uh, it was such a quixotic adventure that we're still going to bear the repercussions from, um, you know, decades from now. I I was you know interested in in Vietnam, like you know, there's just so much literature histor- uh, in historiography about the, what went wrong in the Vietnam War. Everybody has like different opinion. Like maybe it was you know did we do we make the mistake already in the Eisenhower JFK era by sending these advisors by helping the French? Uh, was the mistake when we uh, assassinated our former ally of uh, South Vietnam, uh, President Ziem? Um, but, you know, I, I think I, I actually was was attending this talk. I think, I think we attended it together. There's a, a book that was recently released called The Ark of Containment. And it was uh, about the British and American uh, counter uh, insurgency efforts in both Malaysia and uh, the the rest of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I I had like a, um, a a hypothesis, and I don't know if I agree with it or not. But I was thinking, from a larger global perspective of containment, was the Vietnam War a lost battle? In the Cold War that the U.S. eventually won, won like to an extent against the Soviet Union, maybe to a much more limited sense against China in that Maoist communism didn't spread from China into Southeast Asia. And so that was 
that was one thing I really want to look into more like with, I want to read, you know, some more um, Gaddis about the idea of containment and how effective that was. And maybe, you know, Vietnam, like this isn't to justify the completely like insidious moral actions that were taken by the U S to napalm, you know, civilians. I, I just, I think that's just awful, but maybe from a realist perspective and in, in like the global stage of, containment maybe vietnam was a lost battle in the larger cold war environments mm-hmm. and so that, that's you know something I'm, I'm curious to look into more but i think with um with the u.s in the middle east we just need to take a lot more of a practical realistic approach to the middle east i really would prefer the u.s to stay out of the middle east for a long time and adopt a much more realistic perspective like maybe we could just you know, we, we should have just focused on Afghanistan instead of, you know, going to everywhere else. I wouldn't, I think, you know, you, there is justification for certain special operations, having advisors, but then you can't let the mission creep into like having, you know, the regular boots on the ground, like we did in Iraq, like in Syria, like in Vietnam. So I think that's a tough decision to make. And there may not be a good decision. It might be the least worse of many bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate the answer. Yeah, I, huh, I, I think that, well, in it's interesting that growing up in China, right, our history books, um, I don't think maybe I'm a bad student, but I don't think we covered much on Sino-Vietnam War, and I guess for good reason because it was, it was not really a glorious battle for us either. Right. Um, can you maybe tell our audience a bit more about, you know, what, what do you think really happened now that, you know, after almost 100, not less than 100 years, but more than like half a century now, what, who are the sides really fighting each other? And, and do you think it was really just um, mostly about uh, fighting for influence, or um, do you think that there was more? Sure. I, in my thesis uh, for my master's, uh, I discussed, you know, that I found looking at the history of Vietnam and China in the long durée, I believe that actually the the nineteen late nineteen forties to the the, to the maybe the mid 1960s was kind of like the high point in Sino-Vietnamese relationship mm-hmm. uh, in the in this relationship for like probably the past two millennia. Honestly, it was such a tight uh, bond between the, the Vietnamese and um, the Chinese communists that I think kind of overrode just for a time the historical you know centuries long animosity that. Vietnam and China had towards each other, whereas, you know, China was always uh, coming down to, to dominate um, Vietnam, either as a colony or as a protectorate of the Chinese dynasties. So I, I think that was, that was a really unique part of history. And I think when it came to the late 60s, you can kind of see this erosion of communist internationalism which you can see between the, the the Soviets and the Chinese communists as well. There was this period in the 50s where you you saw uh, all like the world communist movement as a united front. First, you know, you have Yugoslavia break off, then you have China break off and kind of have its own 
uh, pro-Beijing socialist camp versus the Moscow-led uh, Soviet camp. And so I think you you see that in the late 60s when Mao is going away from kind of his cultural uh, revolution, uh, communist internationalism, funding radical revolution around the world, especially in uh, Vietnam and going in, because um, you know, in 1969, there was the border war between the Soviets and the, the Chinese. And I think that kind of, you know, uh, poked Mao and uh, the leadership in Beijing to seek more of a geopolitical um, realist approach and, and pursue mm -hmm. rapprochement with the US. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I think that 1969 border war kind of led to the Kissinger and the Nixon visits of the 70s. And that's, you know, when that happens, uh, Vietnam is still being bombed by the Nixon administration. And they, they see that as a real betrayal. And so once you take away that communist internationalism, you have, have like the, the centuries long cultural animosity that has been under the surface. And that just kind of boils to a head eventually into the 1979 uh, Sino-Vietnamese War. Mm. What do you think um, about the Sino-Vietnam um, relations right now? And okay. now that you're in US about to head to Vietnam and you probably travel to Korea, South Korea and China as well. Um, do you feel like there is a lot of tension in the, in the region right now? Sure, I would say that relative to the 80s, of course, I think Vietnam and China are doing pretty well. I am very curious to learn more about the domestic politics of Vietnam vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, China. I think in the Vietnamese Communist Party, so I hear you have these pro-Beijing factions, you have more nationalistic anti-China um, xenophobic factions. Mm -hmm. and, and I think to be honest, I do think the Vietnamese population as a whole tends to be more nationalistic mm -hmm. than communist international proletarian, which mm -hmm. I think still has some clout um, in the in the party. I think there are, I think some of the more ideological conservative left factions within the Vietnamese Communist Party, if you will, sees China as a necessary partner in the in maintaining their one party dominance in mm -hmm. Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I but I also think you have the more nationalistic people that are looking more to the US to balance against China. And I think it's it's a really interesting conflict between communist internationalism, one party rule and the more pragmatic um, geopolitical balancing game where you don't want you know you obviously don't want to be dominated by the U.S. but you also don't want to be dominated by China, which is becoming more and more powerful every day. And so I I just I think Vietnam is going to be a fascinating and a hopefully not tragic flashpoint for geopolitics in Southeast Asia in the coming decade. Mm. I, yeah, that's I I totally agree, especially looking at what Myanmar you know is. Um, suffering right now. I, I do worry for uh, escalating tensions between, you know, China and Taiwan and um, the, the, the Myanmar um, uh, military government with its uh, surrounding countries, uh, with refugee, possibly refugee crises in Southeast Asia. You know, this is a whole, like, I guess, 
very very difficult situations to deal with of course like you know crises happen everywhere all the time but with covid everything is just much more difficult um and uh but back to back to your um your study, uh, you interned at NYU's US Asia Law Institute, where you helped a lot of legal scholars translate Chinese articles into English and research Chinese history. What was it like? Did you find it interesting? And uh, um, do you find the legal language very archaic? Uh, or um, do, you, do you think it's just as interesting and, and fascinating? And do, did you like the people working there? Yeah, you know, the, the NYU U.S. Asia Law Institute, it, when I first heard about it, uh, I think this was, you know, back when I was in Taiwan and I, I was reading about it and I, I decided, like, you know, I really want to do an internship that uh, someday there. It's And it's still to this day, it's just this very fascinating think tank slash legal institute. Mm-hmm. Um, it, basically, the just this institution that is at the intersection of, of international law, of um, the the rule of law and international relations and foreign policy. And so I, you know, you, every day they just come out with really great content. When I uh, originally started interning there, I think it was a little uh, awkward for them at first because they didn't exactly know what to do with me because most of the students that intern there are either undergrads maybe interested in law, maybe kind of trying to figure things out. And uh, the other interns were JD students who were already in law school. And I was, you know, about to enter uh, Columbia as a graduate student for history, not uh, not law at all. So I, I think they were like, oh, what do we do with this guy? But I ended up having a great time working with some of the scholars. Uh, one of the projects was on kind of the historical um, treaty port system during like i guess the era of national humiliation mm-hmm. and one one thing what we were looking at was kind of how the extra uh, rules of extraterritoriality uh were imposed upon china by these imperial powers mm-hmm. and we we're considering how uh chinese officials today might react to engagement with i guess somewhat similar uh international law organizations like the icj which actually i believe china is not um a, a part of and also the US is not a part of the ICJ system but a lot of these European countries are so we're kind of looking at uh, Chinese ideas about law and international law from a historical perspective and I found that really fascinating I don't know exactly what they ended up doing with the project or if it's still in development but that was a really interesting thing that it just it, it speaks to kind of the the fascinating things that the US Asia Law Institute is um is explores in its work otherwise with like the translations i found it a little difficult at first because i i've never been like officially like certified as a translator i've only had you know this training from uh icop in taiwan Mm -hmm. and i took like a class on legal chinese and based off of that honestly it was easy enough to get used to just because a lot of the chinese legal legal languages has kind of like a standard translation to it that is is pretty um, commonplace. There's not a lot of variation, but I did find that whereas like when you're translating a literary piece or an article into Chinese, you have a lot more room as a translator. Whereas like the 
the attorneys, like one guy was from Australia. He was, he was a really cool guy, but very like, strict about your legal inter, uh, mm. translation of Chinese into English. And so I learned a lot from him, but that was just, you know, really opened my eyes that you really have to be careful, especially in the legal field, mm. how you're translating. That's, that's quite cool. Cause um, I mean, international law, even though a lot of people say it's the fluffiest of, of all the areas. Um, it's, uh, it's very important and there are going to be a lot more legal battles across different countries as, as you see how antagonistic um, the, the leaders of, of all these different countries are towards each other right now and how, but how much underneath that there's also a lot of uh, economic ties and cooperation or deals do, uh, done um, with uh, with China, since it's, you know, the podcast is more Chinese language and culture, um, the, you, you work for the German Marshall um, Institute, which, you know, the Marshall Plan, of course, is, is after the World War II, U.S. Uh, pouring all this money into Europe to help uh, restore uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the dead states, I would say. Um, and, you know, China is doing uh, Belt and Road projects, uh, also outreaching and funding um, all these countries, whether you call it uh, that trap or, uh, you know, it go nitty gritty all into the economic details and then say, oh, China profits or China is like uh, colonial power all over again, or you say China is just like, being a good um, world power, trying to help out their their uh, African comrades, um, and trying to you know exert influence there, and just trying to borrow some ports. <laughs> um, how would you say your um, your vision for the Belt and Road project be? Um, I guess thinking thinking of what the U.S. did uh, to become, I guess, the most powerful or the most influential um, military power, or uh, you said that the world power it is, and what China is doing right now, trying to be also be on the world stage. Yeah, that's, you know, that's like really the, the million dollar question of <laughs> the century, because there was like a conference a few years ago at Columbia, where a lot of scholars came to discuss the comparison between the Marshall Plan and the Belt and Road Initiative. And there was just, there, there really wasn't a strong consensus. There was just so much debate about it, which I found really fascinating. And I, you know, with the Marshall Plan, like, like I said, you know, with the Middle East, you know, you want to have a very, you know, careful, um, I, I think U.S. leaders do not have such a careful approach to foreign intervention as mm. they probably should. But perhaps the Marshall Plan is actually an example where foreign intervention was very effective in mm. rebuilding Europe, um, you know, especially with Germany. You know, we, we kind of came into Germany as a, it was, you know, being treated as a conquered nation. But I believe through the Marshall Plan, it, you know, by the time of the 60s, they had, you know, the economic miracle. And I think that was in a large part due to cooperation with the U.S. through the Marshall Plan. So I, I do think from what I, I know of it, it was effective. 
and you know, I, I hope the BRI can be a similar thing. I, I, I tend to favor, you know, what people call globalization, neoliber uh, neoliberalism, even though it's kind of you know, a dirty word <laughs> in, in the last few years in academia. <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's generally good to have, you know, private um, companies, uh, in, in, you know, investing with developing nations, just because, you know, I think there is, you know, a, even actually this comes from China, there's like a debate between uh, Bo Xilai when he was still in power in Chongqing. Mm -hmm. And oh, one of the one of the officials in uh, Guangdong, I forgot his name, I think his name is Mr. Wong, but there it was like the cake debate. <laughs> and the idea is like, oh, how do you like divide the cake evenly? <laughs> Or how do you like give the cake? And I think Boshua was like, oh yeah, we need to make, you know, have a lot of intervention to make sure the cake is getting to as many people as possible. Whereas mm -hmm. the Guangdong model was that, oh, we can, you know, make, you know, a bigger cake. We don't have to just have it yeah. be one, one size, one finite size. And so I hope with global development, it, it's, you know, I, I tend to think that the Guangdong model is, is a good theory. I think it's been, I think it's worked practically in, in Europe. And I, I think it's where it's practically in Asia. I think the, the issue that throws a wrench with the BRI is the, the state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. And I think they're kind of, you know, mixed players. I think maybe they can be competitive on an international level because they have to, to compete with these international companies mm -hmm. um, that are private. But I also think that they, you know, necessarily, like we spoke before in the kind of like this neo-Maoist aspect to Xi Jinping's governance, mm -hmm. you have the idea that even private Chinese corporations, um, let alone, you know, the SOEs, they have to have these committees of uh, party members that kind of ideologically dictate policy within SOEs or private companies. And I think that might throw a wrench into this kind of win-win trade that's the model of the BRI. I, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm not super great with economics. <laughs> and I, so I, I, get, I think like I, I would defer to Professor Christensen at Columbia SIPA who said that, you know, he hopes that it's the BRI is successful in stabilizing, you know, um, the Middle East, Central Asia, uh, developing Southeast Asia, because it'd be nice, you know, and I was talking, you know, with my friend who's in the Marines and he was in Afghanistan and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to Vietnam next year, but I hope in 20 years we can take a trip to Afghanistan together. And I hope, you know, through either, you know, maybe Chinese investment, maybe US investment, the country is stable. We don't have to worry about, you know, terrorist attacks anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, more than more than I can give you my analysis, I, I would give you my hope that it, it, it does stabilize the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And I hope it does stabilize Afghanistan. Hmm. That's that's a very good hope. I mean, but but the Chinese in in the Middle East, I don't know about you know. I yeah, I don't know. It seems like Africa is still the focus right now. Um, but but very likely it's gonna go all the way to the deep heart of Middle East. Um, it's it's funny because when you watch like Top Gear, the the British car show, I don't know if you watched it. Um, when they were driving in Africa, there are a lot of roads that are just like, oh, terrible as all muddy and all. But then once they reach like another city, it's all like flat 
a beautifully paved road and they were like oh yeah the Chinese were here <laughs> so yeah because the uh, Chinese um, workers are, are there to you know really build roads and build stuff um, well I guess we'll see how it goes in a couple of years uh, and I, I definitely do hope um, that a lot more country can can benefit and just even just like simply have a little bit of economic uh, improvement is good. Um, and there is much of a sense that Chinese people feel with, with what's happening in Myanmar right now is that they can't even feed themselves. How could they talk about democracy and all? Um, and it's a complicated issue, but, but Chinese... Um, seems like a lot of Chinese think of the color revolutions happening in, uh, you know, the, happened in Egypt and like the Arab Springs and all these, you know, they call, call you, you, you're familiar with color revolution, the term, right? Right, yes. <laughs> and they see it in a very negative sense. And that's what, you know, China says that fears the U.S. is going to do to China and like Tibet and all these more sensitive regions. Um, and they, there's always conspiracy theory uh, that, oh, the CIA is behind everything in like Myanmar. It's like they're the ones um, bombing the, the Chinese factory, which, you know, could be true, could be false. Um, you, you never know. It could be the British, you know, the, the uh, British intelligence agency. Um, but it does seem like it's a very not costly uh, thing to mess up a country like inner I guess inner peace in their inner state of course it's not quite like that simple in in Myanmar or any other countries um, but but people are always lazy they don't they don't want to think too much right so they fall into these um, these conspiracy theories or these um it's easy way out kind of to to think that oh it's the western imperialists coming back again oh it's like the cia trying to to uh, separate china into two countries or something um and of course resort to whataboutism is also a a way like you, you get lazy when you're not um really trying hard to think things through in a in a more uh, nuanced uh historical sense um so yeah this is really important for for the world to have more more like john more people like john who <laughs> more like juliana too <laughs> <laughs> and, and more of our classmates at columbia and other places to to think uh to, to think about these issues and then see what happened in the last century or even like way earlier because you believe that history repeats itself, do you? You know, I th I think there's a lot to be learned. I think there's, you know, the saying that history can rhyme. And I, I think I think sometimes it rhymes. It sometimes looks very similar to what's happened before. Mm -hmm. I do, like, I like to think that history shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't just, you know, be hiding in the corner of the library, like studying, you know, some, some like obscure topic. I think, you know, a lot of times like historians can go out and, you know, join with 
the you know these foreign policy think tanks and kind of you know advise just say like look this is what has happened in the country these are like kind of these deep-seated cultural trends these geopolitical trends sometimes they can predict you know what might happen but i think i think you can't predict the future there is like a a nautical kind of analogy i like to think about whereas you know if you're if you're driving a ship on the sea and if you only take like your course, like you, you know, a ship coming into port will take its positioning based on um, like it's, it's like angle to the lighthouse or it's angle to like this, this rock or something. But you know, that, that only gives you like so accurate of a positioning. Whereas if you, if you do it over time, like if you take your uh, point, your positioning at point A to point B to point C, you have a much better idea of where you're going to be at point D. And I think that's what history can help us do. Mm. Oh, that's a, that's a very good analogy. Um, so you, I know that you always like are in the, uh, in the, corner of uh, cv star library <laughs> with your tv on your on your table <laughs> in a in a bottom day <laughs> kind of uh, just sipping to to read more and you are a huge fan of of tea uh, of chinese tea and also maybe british tea i don't know um, what type of tea is your favorite? And do you have some interesting anecdotes you would share about tea drinking? Because you, you're quite a connoisseur in this. Guojiangba, <laughs> <laughs> you, you flatter me. <laughs> but, you know, I, I got really into tea when I was, actually it was in Germany. My, my German host family for a month was they always had like green tea every day. And I just love like sitting back with them. They were, they lived in like the foothills of the Alps by the black forest. And we just like talk for a few hours, having like a whole, um, like a whole pot of green tea. And I just, I really got into that. So when I got to China, I, I started like collecting the different teas of the, from the places where I went. Um, and then, you know, when I was in like Beijing or in Xiamen, I would go to these different tea shops and just kind of practice Chinese with the the laobans, the bosses of these China yeah. shops. And that's kind of how I developed my conversational Chinese a little bit more. And then I, you know, when I go back to um, my home in Wisconsin or I'm in New York or London, I'll like bring out this tea and it kind of helps me remember uh, yeah. where I, you know, where I've been. Like, and then, you know, if I eventually like, I'll run out of the tea and then I'm like, okay, like after I run out, I hope I can like go back. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like, time to go back to that place and like uh, revisit my old friends there have but you yeah, any of the tea farms in china actually yeah, i was when i when i did fulbright i had a, the director of our program um was with dr voki and he's since retired i think he's still in taiwan but he has a um a tea farm in southeastern taiwan in taidong and so after the program was over um I, I went down on the train to visit him at his tea farm in, in Taidong. And it was, it was oh like God. so cool. It was like a really, just a beautiful part of, you know, like Southeastern Taiwan is just, it's one of the more, most like underdeveloped parts of Taiwan. So it's just very, very um, like- Where the natives are. Right, there's the, one of the, one of the peoples I met there was the Paiwanzu. And they were really interesting. I, I highly recommend Taidong. It's just, you get a really like kind of blast from the past part of Taiwan. Hmm. That's so cool. It's a, 
It's surprising that you didn't just stay there and be a tea farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and you wanted to go to law school. I mean, what's going on? Isn't isn't law school like the, according to your your president, the biggest bore of his life? <laughs> um, so you you mentioned that when you were a Fulbright scholar in Taiwan, right? Uh, you read some Chinese authors, uh, Chinese literature. Um, and you also, of course, read a lot on the Cultural Revolution, post-Cultural Revolution, all these more political um, side of, of uh, literature. Um, what's your favorite book, if you uh, could recommend a book or two to our audience? Sure. You know, actually, when I, when I think about, you know, I, I'm a history major, but I really like the idea of literature as history. I had a professor my freshman year and I told him, you know, I, I'm probably going to be a history major, but, uh, you know, literature would definitely be my second choice. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, like with, with learning about history, you know, what, what society did, what the people were thinking at the time. Um, but if you study literature, you kind of know what was like in their minds, the soul of society mm-hmm. at that, that period of, history so it's like basically literature is another way to study history so I you know when I'm studying Vietnam or China I, I like to you know I, I do a lot of history reading but I love to read the non the fiction from that period of time when I was at uh, ICOP in Taiwan one of the classes I ended up taking was um, uh, the the textbook a reader in post-cultural revolution Chinese literature and that actually, I told my teachers I wanted to take it. And they're like, oh, that class is like so boring. Like you should not <laughs> take that class. Because it's like, it's like this really, it's it's like an interesting um, collection of, of culture revolution and post-culture revolution books. And it's like a lot of like agrarian language. So they talk about like mushrooms and different farm plants a lot, but it was awesome. Cause I actually like, not only I signed up for it, but two of my other good buddies from ISOP took it. And we just like had such a blast in that class learning about, uh, it was really a great insight into um, culture revolution, China and 1980s China. Uh, so the book is called, yeah, a reader in post-culture revolution, Chinese literature. Uh, compiled by Vivian Ling. Mm. And one of my favorite uh, short stories from this book was called Shar Bu La And it's it's actually a movie now. And it's about, um, the story is about this journalist who is riding with a trucker in uh, Xinjiang. And they're going on this long road trip. And the trucker is like kind of this like salty old guy, but just telling him all these stories about uh the Xinjiang and how we moved out there during, I think, the Cultural Revolution period. I just was really fascinated by that book. It really, you know, a lot of the historians of China and the U.S. they focus so much on the the elites of China, like Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and what they're doing in Beijing. But this book really takes you into kind of the grassroots aspect of uh, that part of Chinese history. Mm, yeah, I see that. Sour Black Hood. It's a uh... It also was turned into a movie and uh, screened in uh, 1984. Yes. That's uh, that's very cool. It's, you know, with, with Xinjiang back then, I can't even imagine what was it like. Um, I mean, cotton production has always been in Xinjiang, I guess, but I will definitely check it out. Um, 
you have to mail your book to me since you're going to Vietnam anyways. <laughs> oh, appreciate <laughs> um, So uh, this is a very interesting chat. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, I guess what would be the last question? We should wrap it in a very, I guess, interesting light. If, if you were to recommend um, anyone who's interested in learning the Chinese language or um, pursuing a career in like uh, Asia related uh, international law or just simply like wanna travel to Asia now or post COVID, what would you, what, what are some of your advices? Yeah, you know, that's, there's so many different paths to take. And I think in the think tank community, uh, just, you know, the last few months, I've talked to people that have gone into China studies from a journalistic avenue from like a more academic avenue like getting a phd uh for me personally i just think i think you uh, like i think when you want to engage with china or learn more about uh china vietnam uh taiwan i think it just you just like want to do your research maybe find a program like the peace corps uh fulbright or like a study abroad program and I think, you know, the main thing is just go. I think you just kind of, you know, it, it's a little nerve wracking. Like when I first went, went to Tianjin, it was like, oh, like going to China for me, I was like, like all my family like, kind of like went to see me off when I was going to the airport and everything. And, it, you know, of course, now I'm not that it, it's, it's intimidating at, at first. And so I would just, I would recommend people, you know, go like go hard, like go, go extreme, like put yourself in there. Do like, you know, the, I, I think, you know, studying abroad is a really good way if you're still like in undergrad or grad school just to like do as much as you can to get funding and you know even if you can't just like go maybe teach or something and then just you know really immerse yourself in the culture make as many local friends as you can and just like don't be afraid to be you know extreme about your interest in this in the history and the society and the culture and the language mm-hmm. that's so cool thank it's you a, so a Oh. I really like called Baijiu Bu Nao. Mm, Baijiu Bu Nao. Yeah. Yes. And like, I, I always like think of that because I think like, you know, I I failed like a lot of times when I started to learn Chinese. And I was just like so yes. bad at like those ting shits. <laughs> and like, yeah, I like got a really bad grades. But I think after a while, like you, you just, as long as you don't let yourself be defeated, you'll, you know, whether you're learning English or learning Chinese or like studying economics or like, uh, computer programming or like JavaScript. <laughs> I think you you'll eventually get it. You just can't let yourself be defeated. Indeed. Ah, that's a that's very encouraging. Thinking of me learning uh, the machine language right now, man, it's, it's so much harder than any human language that I've taken. But yeah. Um, but thank you so much, John. This is a really interesting talk, and uh, I hope that you head to New York and then I can host you. Uh, we can drink tea together, find a, find a tea place in Brooklyn um, with our friends um, and uh, that you have a good journey to Vietnam. How long are you going to be there again? I should be in Vietnam at least 10 months oh is the term God. of my fellowship. So oh I'm, yeah, I, might, I might like stay a little bit longer just depending how things go. Mm, and if you're ever in China, definitely let me know because I oh, think for I'll be sure. back for for the Winter Olympics next year in Beijing, in where you know my my home place is. 
you should definitely check it out. Like, I hope that, you know, the international community doesn't like boycott it or something. I really yeah. hope they should, but we'll never know because, I mean, the COVID is still happening right now. So, yeah. Hopefully, it all goes well in um, 2022. Yeah, so. that's, that's like hard as an athlete. Like, because, you know, I, I ran, you know, track and cross country in high school um, and college in the club for a bit. And I just, you know, I, I understand like the political considerations, but I also I'm like, oh, I just, you know, I feel for those athletes because they only get one chance to compete every four years. And I, I know like for me, like when I was in a race, I just get so into, you know, so focused on that one, you know, race coming up. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I can't say what'll happen, but I just, yeah, I, I definitely like, you know, feel for, you know, everybody involved. I just, I hope, you know, good outcomes come, comes for the athletes and the, the Uyghur population. Mm, definitely. Well, and the Han Chinese and the Americans too. <laughs> You're a real passive, what do you call, what do you call that? Pa- pacifist? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, peace, cross finger. No COVID soon, cross finger. Um, okay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Julian. I hope to see you in a few weeks. Yes, definitely.